Welcome to Power Play. I'm Mike LeCouture. Today, pressure on parents. Supply has started to enter the country. After next week, more than one million bottles of product will have entered Canada. Health Canada boosts supplies of dwindling children's medications as pharmacy shelves run bare and pediatric ICUs are overrun. What's being brought in and when will it finally hit store shelves? We'll break all of that down for you. And economic tour overshadowed by autocrats. Today, a North Korean test fire. This is completely unacceptable and must not continue. As the Prime Minister wrapped up a tour of diplomatic and economic meetings in Asia, North Korea test-fired an intercontinental ballistic missile towards Japan. We get the latest from Bangkok. Plus, Canada in Qatar. The men's national soccer team has landed in Doha ahead of Sunday's World Cup kickoff. But will our diplomats follow? How will the government balance soccer support and the host the host nation's dire human rights record. We'll get the latest from the Gulf state and talk to Amnesty International. This is Power Play. Let's get to the players. Well, relief is on the way for parents struggling with the shortage of children's pain medication in this country. Health Canada has secured more than one million bottles of infant and child children's acetaminophen and ibuprofen from foreign sources. The imports are expected to arrive at hospitals and store shelves starting early next week. This much-needed relief comes as up to 800 drugs are considered in short supply. 22 of those have been deemed a critical shortage. So with more meds on the way, will that be enough to meet the current demand from parents? And will it help take the pressure off pediatric hospitals grappling with the triple threat of RSV, influenza and COVID-19? Let's ask our panel of experts. Justin Bates is the CEO of Ontario's Pharmacists Association, and Dr. Kathleen Smart, or Dr. Kathleen Smart, is a pediatrician and former president of the Canadian Medical Association. Thank you both for being here. Mr. Bates, we'll start with you. I want to get your reaction to Health Canada importing these children's meds. Is this just a band-aid solution, in your opinion? It really is a short-term solution, and while it's welcome, because we do need these broad-ranging medications to help with pain and fever, it doesn't really address the root cause of a lack of domestic capacity and no flexibility to be able to accommodate fluctuations in demand. And what we've seen in Canada since August is a 300% increase in demand for these products. So this certainly will help and it will supplement both hospitals as a priority and community uh, providers like pharmacies. But we need to think of more medium to long-term solutions. So, Mr. Bates, is this basically a domestic capacity issue because Health Canada says production of these products were already double from what we would have had last year? Well, when manufacturers forecast, they look at historical consumption patterns. And yes, we have seen the rise in uh, infections and RSVs and viral uh, infections alongside the perfect storm of the triple threat of COVID outbreaks, cold and flu. So we did see a demand curve that we've never seen before and very much earlier than we would typically see in the late summer. So that 300% increase can't be met by our current domestic suppliers. They're limited in what they can ramp up to. They're already at 35% more production than they have ever done, which is a record level. So that speaks to me that we have a supply challenge in terms of what our 
limitations are, not enough production facilities in Canada to meet the demand. Dr. Smart, as a pediatrician, you're right on the front lines of seeing that demand. How have you pivoted when talking to parents as you see patients who likely need medications which are currently in short supply? I think it's been a really stressful time for parents. You know, the vast majority of fever in children is viral and it is self-limited and fever itself is not dangerous, but it does cause a lot of distress for parents and children and being able to manage those symptoms at home is really critical for parents. And we've absolutely seen some people having to seek care in emergency departments because of those concerns and that inability to manage. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to help people understand how they could safely use adult formulations of Tylenol and ibuprofen uh, for children and help them with weight weight based dosing while we're waiting for the suspensions to be available again. But that's stressful for people as well. And, and of course, those formulations are not as palatable for children. So that's got its own challenges. So when we see some of the pressure that's on pediatric hospitals, but also what we're seeing in uh, private practices, where do you think Health Canada should really prioritize these shipments? Should it be in the hospitals that are overwhelmed, overwhelmed or should it be to local pharmacies where parents desperately need them? Well, I think Health Canada is going to need to look at where the variable supply is across the country. Of course, children's hospitals need access to these medications. I think it's important to understand they're not only for treating fever and cold-like symptoms, but they're also our mainstay of pain management. So for any child that's having a surgical procedure, et cetera, they need access to those medications as well. But of course, access in the community is also important because the vast majority of children with viral symptoms and fever can be managed safely at home, but that's challenging for parents if they don't have access to those tools. So I think there's pros and cons on both sides, but the bottom line is these really are essential medications that need to be in hospitals and in communities. Yeah, and Mr. Bates, I wanted to ask you, with these foreign imports, Health Canada has said that there will be information for parents on the shelves with the packages, but what are some key things to keep in mind when it comes to dosages for kids and, and how much they should be taking with these? Yeah, that was one of the concerns that Health Canada has when they look at providing exemptions to the regulatory requirements, one of them being labeling. So there are differences in the concentration with some of the products coming in from the U.S., and that needs to be translated to dose appropriately. And what I'm hearing is that there'll be stickers uh, on the packages uh, as well as, uh, or in addition to the uh, inserts so that parents can see it both in English and French, the drug facts, um, which are slightly different in terms of requirements of what's contained in safety and caution um, notes, as well as the, the dosing. So we know this will be safe, um, but you know it's important to make sure the instructions are clear and you speak to your healthcare provider if you have any questions. Uh, Dr. Smart, we've got about a minute left, but Health Canada says those in big cities might see these shipments of the meds before people in rural and remote communities because cities are closer to distribution centers. How much of a concern is that for you? Well, it's a definite concern. You know, I work in the north in the Yukon and we're far away from any other centers. Um, so it's a real challenge for people in rural and remote parts of the country that already have less access to health care than many people living in urban centers. So I think it's going to be very important from an equity perspective that Health Canada ensures that these medications become available broadly. I, I can appreciate, you know, they have to start somewhere, but it's very important that rural Canadians have the same access to essential medications and health care as other Canadians. Dr. Catherine Smart, Justin Bates, thank you both so much for taking the time. I appreciate this. Thank you. Thank you.
So from a shortage of drugs here in Canada to an international trip where there's been no shortage of news, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is continuing his 10-day trip in Southeast Asia, wrapping up meetings at the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum. The focus there was supposed to be trade. But that confrontation with China's President Xi continues to dog Trudeau. Talks at the APEC summit were derailed Friday as North Korea fired another test missile towards Japan. Japanese officials say it had a range that could have hit the continental United States. CTV's Annie Bergeron-Oliver is traveling with the Prime Minister and has the latest from Bangkok. Well, Mike, it's been a busy eight days for the Prime Minister in Asia with three summits back to back to back. A main focus throughout has been Canada's push to increase trade and economic ties here with some of the fastest growing economies in the world. And while the Prime Minister and his trade minister say progress has been made and connections with Southeast Asian nations strengthened, politics and world events have also overshadowed the summit. That meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping at the G20 is still reverberating around the world. China yesterday said that the bad relationship over the years are on Canada and called on them to take concrete actions to improve it. I asked Trudeau today whether that is a priority. He didn't really answer the question, but he did say that direct conversations are important at these summits, even if the conversations aren't easy. He also added that he intends to seek cooperation wherever possible. Then there's North Korea. That also loomed large today. The country fired an intercontinental ballistic missile that Japan says has the power to hit the continental U.S. And that prompted the U.S. president to call an emergency meeting of Western allies, including Canada. They all condemned the test and urged North Korea to stop. Trudeau, after that meeting, Mike, signaled that the Canadian Armed Forces will have an enhanced presence in the region with more defense investment. I asked Trudeau for details, but didn't get much. Now the Prime Minister is off to Tunisia for the Francophonie Summit. Mike. CTV's Annie Bergeron, Oliver in Bangkok, Thailand. Thank you, Annie. Well, still to come, the ugly side of the beautiful game in Qatar. As the World Cup is set to kick off, human rights groups feel the spotlight should be on the Gulf states' shortcomings instead of the sport. We'll break it all down with the Secretary General of Amnesty International Canada right after this. Team Canada has touched down in Doha. The men's national team is fresh off yesterday's win over Japan in an international friendly. Can they keep up the momentum before they take the field in their first game on Wednesday? Fans will be ready to cheer on their favorite teams, but a last-minute decision by officials means beer won't be sold in or around stadiums. How is that affecting the ramp-up to the World Cup? Let's find out. And joining me now is CTV News' Heather Wright. Thanks for joining us, Heather. We're less than two days before the first match. What is the atmosphere like right now, especially after officials reverse the decision and will not be selling beer inside stadiums? Yeah, definitely a decision that took a number of fans by surprise. You know, two days out from the first match of the FIFA World Cup here in Qatar. And this decision comes out really at the 11th hour where they will not be selling beer outside of stadiums. They were never going to be selling it in the concourse, but there were going to be sort of beer tents set up in the pavilion area outside of the eight stadiums. This is something that FIFA and the Qataris had agreed on, you know, many years ago as part of the, the agreement to host the World Cup here, that Qatar was going to relax some of its rules, including the sale of beer. So here we are 
two days out and this decision coming through, which really raises a number of questions and questions for fans too, who have already arrived here in this country. Um, certainly there are a number of fans that you might talk to who, who say that beer is not necessarily uh, you know, a requirement for a World Cup. On the flip side, there are a number of fans who say, you know, it's going to be strange to watch a football match without a beer. So a number of, you know, surprise comments from fans we spoke to today. But, you know, the, the general mood, as you could probably hear behind me, is of excitement. And, and even those who might have wanted to have a beer, you know, in, in the stadiums, they're saying they came for the football, not for the beer. And, you know, they're here just to watch some really good soccer. Yeah, and all eyes in this country on Team Canada as they prepare to take the pitch. And everyone certainly wants to know the status of team star Alfonso Davies. What's the latest from the team on that front? Well, the good news is, is Alfonso Davies has touched down here in Doha. Um, he was not with the team earlier this week when they pay, played their final tune-up match um, against Japan in nearby Dubai. He touched down today. And, you know, questions have lingered around that hamstring injury. We're, we're not getting a whole lot of information from Canada's soccer, but we heard shortly after he injured himself from Bayern Munich that it was not going to impact his participation at this World Cup. And so he is here. It seems as though he, he will be ready to go on Wednesday. We haven't got the official green light, but, you know, he is part of this really exciting Canadian soccer team. And even an American uh, fan came up to me today and said, you know, your chances are better than ours in terms of, you know, Perhaps Canada, you know, scoring a goal, winning a game, maybe making it out um, of the qualifying round. And, and it's the World Cup. Cinderella stories happen. You never know what could happen. And, and Canada plays its first match on Wednesday against Belgium. And we'll all be watching CTV News' Heather Wright in Doha at the World Cup. Thanks so much for doing this. I appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. There's plenty of fanfare, but also plenty of concerns over human rights in that country. Advocacy groups are sounding the alarm on those concerns about Qatar's labor conditions. Migrant workers are calling for compensation from FIFA and Qatar for a variety of allegations, including wage theft, injuries, and even unexplained deaths. Advocates are also flagging concerns over LGBTQ2 plus rights. Just last month, human rights organizations said they documented security forces arresting LGBTQ2 plus or S plus individuals in public places. So how should the federal government balance that global enthusiasm, enthusiasm with alarm bells over the Gulf state's human rights record? Let's find out. Let's find out. Joining me now is Amnesty International's Canadian Secretary General, Ketty Neviabandi. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today. I know that Amnesty International Canada is particularly concerned about labor rights in Qatar. What are the concerns about the actual work to prepare for the World Cup? Absolutely. Um, thank you for having me. Uh, we are very concerned about the, the situation and the labor rights of migrants. The people who really have made this World Cup a reality um, ever since uh, Qatar was announced as, uh, as the host for this World Cup. Um, we know that there are, um, there's a legacy of, uh, of terrible uh, labor rights in, in Qatar. Uh, we know that there are thousands of uh, migrant workers who died in the lead up to the World Cup uh, in, uh, in absolutely uh, impossible living conditions and working conditions many of them in under extreme heat. Um, 
and some of them purposely uh, because they were working on World Cup related projects. So that's a huge concern. Um, Qatar also has had a, a history of, um, of a uh, um, relationship that's been uh, really difficult between workers and their employers. Some of these laws have been changed, but there remain a lot of concerns. So um, migrant workers continue to have uh, to be underpaid, largely underpaid, overworked, sometimes working 14 to 18 hours a day without a, rate, a day to rest, um, often uh, sometimes not being paid or having their fees confiscated by um, their employers or sometimes their passports as well confiscated. So it is a, a very um, concerning um, state for, for migrant workers. And part of what we've been asking for is for compensation for uh, the, the workers who endured a number of these abuses over the years and their families. So detail uh, for me, if you can, a little bit about that compensation that you're asking for, but also if you've heard any response. Yes, absolutely. We're asking for a fund of four million and four hundred and forty million um, for compensation for these workers and their families, and that really um, is an equivalent to what the national federation team would receive. Uh, and we uh, we're asking for this to ensure that the families of these uh, workers are compensated accordingly. Um, now, fortunately, a number of uh, soccer teams and federations have responded very positively. Uh, we've heard from uh, many teams, uh, including the U.S. team, uh, the, the, the English team or the French team as well. Uh, many of them joining this call to urge FIFA to pay up, to pay these workers and to compensate them uh, accordingly. We've also done a survey and found out that the majority of fans, soccer fans, want FIFA to pay up, uh, three quarters of them want FIFA to pay up, and two thirds of them want their national teams to speak up. Uh, unfortunately, here on Canadian soil, um, it's, uh, it, it's quite disappointing to see that the Canadian team has not joined those calls. We continue to hope that between now and Wednesday, they will, uh, but it is critical, particularly as Canada will be the next host ensure that we speak up and that we don't uh, brush these uh, terrible human rights concerns under the carpet. Amnesty International Canada Secretary General Ketty Neviabandi, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate this. Now is, here is some other news you need to know. Parents and guardians in Ontario are making backup childcare plans with a strike looming that could close down schools on Monday. We represent early childhood educators. There's supposed to be two adults in every kindergarten class working with our youngest learners. Uh, all too often this year, there's one adult, a teacher, working with 20 or 25 little ones. Simply impossible to do any real learning there. More than 50,000 unionized education workers will walk off the job on Monday if a deal isn't reached with the provincial government. Both sides have agreed to a wage increase, but the issue now is staffing levels. Ontario's education minister says the government has fulfilled its part of the bargain. We withdrew that legislation. We increased their wages significantly. We've gone to a flat raise. We protected their pensions and benefits and the sick leave that is materially, that is objectively the best in Canada. And so we are doubling down on all efforts to get a deal. It just requires the union uh, to accept the good proposal before them. 
The two sides will spend the weekend at the bargaining table. Ontario's Ministry of Education has told school boards to move to remote learning quickly if they can't keep schools open. And the government is pitching Halifax as the headquarters for a new NATO body. They want the Nova Scotia city to be the home of the Defence Innovation Accelerator for North, the North Atlantic. It would be a tech hub tasked with solving critical defence and security issues. This is not about building new missiles or tanks. This is about capturing the power of innovative ecosystems across the alliance. Three of the Prime Minister's closest advisors have been added to the witness list at the Emergencies Act inquiry next week. Chief of Staff Katie Telford, Deputy Chief of Staff Brian Clough, and Director of Policy John Broadhead will all, are all slated to appear. It will be a packed week with seven ministers and, of course, the Prime Minister testifying at the Commission. Well, coming up, Trudeau's Asian adventures come to an end. Will the Prime Minister's work in Southeast Asia be overshadowed by his testy exchange with President Xi? A Friday panel of political strategists will dig into that when Power Play returns. Three countries and one international incident later, the Prime Minister's trip through Southeast Asia is coming to a close. It was supposed to be a leaping off point for Canada's Indo-Pacific strategy, but that may have changed slightly after a tense exchange between President Xi and Prime Minister Trudeau. Then came news of a launch, or of a lunch rather, where Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman was present among other leaders. So can we call this trip a success? or a failure? And what should we expect next week as Trudeau and his cabinet ministers testify at the inquiry looking into the use of the Emergencies Act? Let's bring in the strategy session to weigh in. We've got Greg McEachran from Proof Strategies. He leans liberal. Andrew Brander, he's a conservative strategist and Crestview Strategy Vice President and the National Director of the NDP. Anne McGrath also joins me here in studio. Let's start with you, Greg. I wanted to ask you, we listed a number of things that have happened in the last few days with the Prime Minister. Um, would you list this as a good week or a bad week for him? Well, if I'm going to look at the facts, I'm going to look at, say it's a good week. And I week. hope you do. Yeah, that's. Yeah. You know, I'm still pro-fact. I know that may make me rarity in this town. But um, look, there are some announcements that people aren't going to really notice. There's a lot of money for agriculture um, efforts to, to, uh, to push our trade in, in that region. Um, military uh, staffing for both um, uh, embassies there as well as global affairs here. So there's a lot of good things there, but probably people aren't going to notice them because a lot of people made a big point over the Chinese leader, seeming like he was pretty upset with Trudeau. And it was that, a big point. And to that I say, good. Do Are we upset that a dictator is mad at our prime minister? Well, apparently some politicians in, in this, and some conservative pundits are. And so it's a really weird pretzel-shaped, you know, place you have to get to, to in the same week be complaining about China, interfering in our elections, interfering in campaigns, and it looks like it was conservative campaigns, perhaps MPs' offices, and at the same time, act like you're supposed to be upset because the leader of China has mad at our prime minister. I, I think that's, that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. Andrew, I'll bring you in here. I mean, you worked for the Harper government. Uh, prime Minister Harper once said he wouldn't sell out Canadian values for a trade deal with China. Do you see Prime Minister Trudeau standing just as strong in the face of China this week as Harper did back then? 
Look, I think I think the issue that a lot of pundits, as Greg mentioned, are are taking issue with is if you're if you're going to elicit and and sort of enter into these types of diplomatic snafus, if for for lack of a better term, uh, it's better to do so over over an issue of policy rather than process. It seems that uh, the message was certainly clear. Um, but but what the you know what the Chinese took issue with was was the fact that this was you know their discussions were were completely uh, completely leaked uh, and and I think I think when you're looking at the overall success of this trip you you really have to uh, question uh, the efficacy if if something as small as that can really derail your entire announcements the fact is. These uh, announcements and are, are pale in comparison to the types of geopolitical, uh, the, the enormity of the geopolitical um, issues that we're facing right now. And the fact is Canada's lost its voice on the international stage because of a lack of attention to detail. And that's exactly what this case boiled down to. But wasn't it a lack of attention to detail? Or, I mean, these, these readouts are regular. I mean, I, I believe under the Harper years, we had readouts like that as well when there was a meeting with a foreign, uh, a it, it foreign was, leader. It's not a leak, Mike. It's, no, I mean, it, it's, it is a readout. I mean, yeah, to, like, Greg's, to Greg's point, but also to the point that I think a, a lot of others are, are making, Andrew, and, and I just want to bring this up with you. These readouts are typical, maybe not typical for the Chinese, but do you think that that weighs into it? Well, I think that's something certainly to... To consider, but I think I think ultimately, at the end of the day, the the distraction that that caused uh, means you know sometimes the the message gets lost in that. And at the end of the day, if the message is being lost because of how it's being delivered, then I I don't think that's an effective way to to communicate that. Point taken, and I'll bring it to you. Um, do you think that the prime minister did the best he could in that particular situation, given? Cameras were, were present. It didn't seem like either of the two leaders knew that was going to happen, but certainly that conversation happened anyways. I didn't think that the prime minister uh, misplayed that, to be honest. I thought that uh, I, I think that a lot of this has been overblown, uh, mm. as, as, as you've said, that readouts are very typical. Um, I've seen them many times. They're like less than a half a page. They're pretty straightforward. And different depending on who's giving the readout. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, it was not a leak. It was a readout. And uh, I think that the Chinese leader um, uh, uh, did not come off looking all that positively in, in that in that uh, exchange. The relationship with China is very fraught. Mm -hmm. I think most Canadians would not have wanted uh, the prime minister to back down in, in, in that circumstance. I I think what's important here, though, is as we develop our trade relationships, um, is what's going to be in this uh, Indo-Pacific strategy and how are we going to, uh, at the same time as kind of maintain a relationship with China, um, uh, enhance our relationships with other countries in the region. And whether or not in that Indo-Pacific strategy, the page on China or chapter on China gets a couple of corrections after <laughs> this weekend. Greg, I wanted to shift gears for a second, go to the Emergencies Act next week. You're going to have cabinet ministers, also three members of the prime minister's inner circle added to the witness list. What do you think that does so late in the game to the conversation around this? Well, I mean, I, you know, I, I know the three staffers. I've, you know, I've worked in a previous government with one. I, I, I know Ms. Telford, Mr. Clough. Um, I don't think they're surprised that they've been called. I think they, that they knew this was 
coming that they were prepared for it. Um, Anne and I were chatting about this in the green room. There's a, a, been an evolution where we didn't used to see staff called. Mm-hmm. I think uh, Nigel Wright from uh, Prime Minister Harper's office is the first one that I can remember. And I'm not sure I, I love that, but this is a bit of a different situation in that it's the Emergencies Act inquiry. This is part of, of, the, of the law. But the reality is, like, Ottawa is going to be consumed with nothing else next week. We're going to be watching this all very, very carefully. Um, there is an opportunity. Um, you know, there's a huge risk for the government, for the prime minister there. But there's an also an offered uh, an opportunity. What we've seen thus far is is a lot of the confusion, the dysfunction between mm-hmm. the levels of police. We saw Jody Thomas's um, uh, testimony where she, we know what advice that she gave. So I, I think we are starting to head to see where why the government made this decision, and it's based on you know the fact that nothing was moving. If there were a plan. You know, if the, if the commissioner of the RCMP had a plan, she certainly wasn't bringing it forward. So I think as a Canadian, as someone who lived here through this, yeah. I really want to hear from, from these folks because I want to know how was it on the inside? How did we end up in this? Yeah, Andrew, is this an opportunity or, or, or is this uh, something that, you know, I, I think the first thing that one thinks of is, you know, that old saying that sunlight is the greatest disinfectant. So is it good in your mind to have these three members of the inner circle um, being, you know, put on the stand to testify? Sure it is. Uh, I I think we're going to learn a lot from uh, all of the witnesses next week. There's still a lot of questions in terms of, uh, obviously, the the testimony that we've heard from uh, the director of CSIS uh, and and where uh, the the reconciling of the the difference between constituting this as a a national emergency um, laid with with the political decision makers of the day. And and I think the thing that I'm looking most forward to in in this format, at least, is it's not the House of Commons. It's not question period. Um, So be that that hearing directly from some of the senior staff who uh, are equally important in many of these uh, decision making uh, processes. Um, or, or from the elected politicians themselves who uh, will not be able to just stick to the talking points um, and, and perhaps be able to provide a bit more context behind why they arrived at the decisions that they did. And I've got about 45 seconds left. When you consider where we are right now in the inquiry, there's been a lot of uh, evidence of disorganization and confusion behind the scenes of the police forces. Does that make it easier for the prime minister and his inner circle and his cabinet to walk into that the testimony there, feeling a little more relaxed, seeing that that's on the table? Well, first, I would say I really appreciated this public inquiry. I'm very glad that it's part of the act to actually have to have this. It's really given us a lot of insight. I would say that the intrigue and the drama and the confusion was not just behind the scenes. It was mm-hmm. very much out in front. I think anybody who lived here, for instance, or probably anybody in Windsor or in Coots or any of those places saw the dysfunction and realized that, that, that nothing was moving and that there was no possible, there didn't seem to be the possibility of any kind of resolution. Certainly if there was any, nobody was talking about it. Yeah. So I, I have really appreciated it and I think it gives us a really good insight into the decision making and, uh, and, and I'm, I think next week is going to be the culmination of what has been incredibly compelling uh, testimony so far and uh, next week I think we're going to learn a lot. Must see TV. Anne McGrath, Greg McEachern, speaking of must see TV, this panel, and Andrew Brander, <laughs> thank you all for being with us. Have a great weekend. Coming up, we continue our coverage of the Emergencies Act inquiry. What did we learn from Canada's top bureaucrat today? Well, CTV's Glenn McGregor has the latest from us down at the inquiry. We'll be right back on Power Play.
the situation overall was a national emergency. It was urgent. It was critical. There was the threat of serious violence that put at risk the lives, the health and safety, the security of Canadians, our economic fortunes, and that taken together, that was beyond the capacity of any individual province or territory to deal with. Well, the Emergencies Act inquiry is wrapping up another week of testimony. Today's testimony features the clerk of the Privy Council, Janice Charette. The, she's Canada's top civil servant. Now, to break it all down, we're going to bring in CTV News' senior political correspondent, Glenn McGregor. Thanks for joining us again here, Glenn. The inquiry heard from Canada's top bureaucrat. What do we learn from Janice Charette's testimony today? Yeah, some fascinating testimony today, uh, Mike. Jenna Charette kind of leading us through how this particular sausage got made. That is the decision to invoke the Emergencies Act on February 14th. She kind of led us through day by day and in some cases hour by hour the process that Cabinet, the Prime Minister, Deputy Ministers all went through. They were weighing essentially what she called a two-track option. One option was to go with the existing powers that law enforcement had and maybe try some new things they hadn't tried before, including at one point discussing shutting down cell phone service to downtown Ottawa. So I guess everybody couldn't take Instagram pictures. They wouldn't want to, they, they might all decide to go home. And then the other track being to invoke new powers, including potentially the Emergencies Act. So this debate goes on between deputy ministers, between cabinet ministers, and in a meeting of the prime minister and some of his more senior cabinet ministers called the IRG, the Incident Response Group, they ultimately get to this point where it looks like they are going to have to invoke the act. So on the morning of February 14th, the prime minister makes a call to the premiers and provincial, ter and, provincial and territorial leaders and, and uh, talks to them about that. Some of them are on board. Some of them are not. Some of them are undecided. Then later that day, on February 14th, Jenna Charette sends what she calls a decision note. It kind of encapsulates all the information, all the options, all the intelligence that they know about the convoy and whether or not it is dangerous. She sends that to the Prime Minister. About 45 minutes later, he sends it back, has signed off on it, and the decision has been made. 4.30 p.m. that day, Ottawa time, they announce that now historic decision to invoke the Emergencies Act. And how did she defend the use of the Emergencies Act after CSIS suggested that the convoy didn't qualify as a national security threat? Yeah, this is a real problem uh, for the government side uh, at this, this commission of inquiry because we've heard from, the, from CSIS that by their definition, what was happening in Ottawa and at, in Coots, Alberta, and at the Ambassador Bridge in Windsor and Emerson, Manitoba, did not qualify as a threat to national security under, as it's de defined by a piece of legislation that empowers them called the CSIS Act. That's important because the Emergencies Act requires a government, before it invokes the Emergencies Act, that it has to look at the CSIS Act to see if the same standard is met. So you've had, on one hand, you have CSIS saying, no, it wasn't met. Had, on the other hand, the federal government saying, yeah, we think it has been met. So Jenna Charette was asked about that today. She gave a kind of a detailed, complex, uh, sometimes legalistic answer. She says CSIS is only interpreting it with respect to their own legislation. That is, for them to start surveillance on people at a legal protest, it has to meet that standard. They aren't making the decision with respect to the Emergencies Act, which weighs a bunch of different factors, including uh, economic security, those kind of things. This is ultimately going to be a question for lawyers and ultimately a question for the Commissioner of the Inquiry, uh, Paul Rouleau. He's going to have to decide 
uh, whose side of that argument he'll, he'll come down on, Mike. And adding to that, next week, the prime minister and his cabinet testifying. CTV's Glenn McGregor at the inquiry. Thanks again, Glenn. I appreciate this. Thanks, Mike. One last break on Power Play. When we return, yes, everyone's favorite Friday feature. It is the political plays and misplays of the week with our press gallery. We are calling a timeout on Power Play, and we will be back right after this. Well, with the World Cup set to kick off in a couple of days, I thought it might be fun to give a bit of a football feel to our Friday press gallery. I consulted no one, so this will be a shock to our usual band of Parliament Hill hooligans that are on this panel. But you know what? I'm the host. I mean, for now. So I get to do what I want to do. Yes, it's our weekly political plays and misplays of this week. I was going to rename it Free Kicks and Fouls, but I might be taking a bit of that cross-promotion just a hair too far. I mean, it is a Bell Media station. TSN will be airing the games, but I digress. Okay, here's our starting lineup, folks. CTV News Senior Digital Parliamentary Reporter, Rachel Aiello. Toronto Star Columnist, Susan Delacourt. And Principal at Earnscliff Strategy, Greg Weston. Nice to see you all, and I hope I threw you all off with that. I really Definitely. appreciate it. Yeah, I hope so. Uh, Greg, you have a misplay to hand out to the Prime Minister, uh, and it has to do with that test exchange between the Prime Minister and President Xi. We'll take a look at it to remind people if they haven't seen it enough. <laughs> Everything we discuss is then leaked to the paper. That's not appropriate. If in there Canada, is sincerity on your part, free and open and frank dialogue, and that is what we will continue to have. We will continue to look to work constructively together, but there will be things we will disagree on, and we will have to come Let's create the conditions first. So, Greg, it's the Prime Minister's response that's getting a misplay. Tell me why. Well, I have some sympathy for the Prime Minister. I'm, I'm probably the only person here who's on live television had the Chinese ambassador say, tell that guy to, quote, shut up. Nice. And you see how well that worked. So anyway, <laughs> um, all politics, you know, we say all politics are local and these international gatherings are, are no different. Everybody's playing to their, uh, their home audience. Uh, the Prime Minister, uh, and in this case, the uh, Chinese leader, uh, President Xi, was certainly playing to his domestic uh, audience. Uh, Even though it was I, a Canadian I, camera that caught it, that's the interesting thing. It is. It is, and that I don't think was probably any accident. Uh, the, the Chinese tend to, on their diplomatic front, uh, do things in a pretty deliberate right. way. Um, and for sure. And I, I struggled with this a little bit because it was a deliberate thing by uh, by the Chinese president. The problem is what the Canadians take away from their prime minister and what they saw here. Uh, in the best case scenario, they saw the prime minister standing up to uh, the Chinese president. I think, unfortunately, the image that comes back from this was uh, – uh, and the Chinese made a, a, a point of saying that they thought that the prime minister was condescending or whatever. Whether it's truthful or not, the picture that we saw uh, and which we just saw, I think, to most Canadians, um, offended what they really want from their leaders abroad, which is to be respectable mm -hmm. uh, and to be respected. And I think they saw uh, Justin Trudeau being disrespected uh, and, in fact, kind of brushed off like a, a, a piece of uh, lint by the 
by the Chinese president. So I don't think that was a good look. Yeah. Susan, bad look? Disagree. <laughs> Sorry. I love Greg, but I disagree. And that's why we have you guys here. <laughs> um, I watched that video very closely uh, because uh, uh, Trudeau's body language was anything but chastened, as the Guardian said. He was um, he leaned in mm -hmm. and looked G in the eye and uh, and told him and didn't back down. And I think there are some Canadians, especially after the two Michaels, who really want Canada to look G in the eye and say, you're not going to push us around. So I. I wasn't uh, fussed by that either. I think it's also interesting that that they they chose they, they thought they had to go back and, and explain, you know, he, he was condescending or something like that. I I don't think this is going to keep Justin Trudeau awake at night. This uh, this encounter, and I wrote that being lectured on secrecy by the Chinese is like being lectured on diplomacy by Donald Trump, and we've experienced both. Right? Yeah. yeah, Rachel, how do you think the prime minister came off? Well, I think there's some irony in the fact that this. Uh, frustration over leaking things to the press was caught on a pool camera, just first of all. Right. Congratulations to them for doing <laughs> that. But moreover, I think what made this more of a fixation for folks is that we still don't have that uh, Indo-Pacific policy from the government. So we don't have kind of the policy gravitas to back this up, to think that Canada is taking a tougher, a tougher stance with China. They haven't released that yet. So <clears throat> there wasn't something for Canadians or anyone really to point to to back up the Prime Minister's position on this, that no, I was standing up to China here. Yeah. Okay, so we'll go now to Susan play. You have it for Jody Thomas, the Prime Minister's National Security Advisor. She was testifying at the Emergencies Inquiry. We have a clip to play for that as well. I think that uh, both acts were written in the 1980s and they both need to be modernized to reflect the reality of the nature of threats that are occurring uh, in 2022. Okay, but again, you understand that in the case of the Emergencies Act, there are reasons why we would want a high threshold. I'm not disagreeing with the threshold. I'm just I'm speaking about an act that was written 30 years ago uh, that needs uh, to be modernized to reflect the reality of the kinds of threats uh, that exist in the world today. So, Susan, why is this a play for you? Well, this is not somebody we see every day. This is the National Security Advisor. And so she's just been a mysterious person to me. Mm -hmm. And I was really impressed by how she took charge. And... We've been waiting in this, these hearings for somebody to say, it was me. I said that you should bring in the Emergencies Act, and she did it. She said, no, it was me. Yeah. And so that was sort of a boom moment at the uh, inquiry. And I thought, if I'm ever in a scrap, I want Jody Thomas on my side. She's, uh, she was tough, and especially, too, we didn't show it in the clip, but uh, in the encounter with the convoy lawyers, I've been saying Justin Trudeau is going to be up next a week today. And uh, he should be studying Jody Thomas for uh, for how she answered the convoy lawyers respectfully, but take no nonsense either. Yeah. Greg, if I could get you to respond in about 20 seconds or so. Uh, if you want one person's view of this whole debacle, it's Jody Thomas. She is the funnel for the government. Mm -hmm. All the information flows into her and through her. That's what flows to cabinet. So if she says this is this is what happened, that is somebody who has actually 360-degree view of, of everything that was going on at the time. So her, her if you're going to take one person's testimony right. very seriously, it's Jody Thomas. Um, so now, Rachel, let's move to your misplay. You have one for Health Canada. Before we talk about that, guess what, folks? One more clip. 
We've now received and approved three proposals to import foreign product and supply has started to enter the country. After next week, more than 1 million bottles of product will have entered Canada to supply hospitals, community pharmacies, and retailers, and medications will start appearing on store shelves starting early next week. So, Rachel, that's Dr. Sharma and the drug shortage. Go ahead while you're misplay. So I had to listen to that clip three or four times today to figure out exactly what she was saying. And for me, this is a misplay overall about how Health Canada has communicated this incoming shipment mm-hmm. of kids' medication. It started out on Monday saying that there was an incoming dose uh, supply for retail and community uh, care centres, uh, in addition to the stuff going to hospitals. Okay, fine. And then a bunch of um, officials went over to a committee. Parliamentarians were asking, we still don't know know how much and when and the answer they got there was this is confidential business information and we can't share that with you jump forward to today i'm not sure what conversations went on between then and now dr sharma comes on tv and tells canadians very clearly this is how many doses are coming in this is when they are i think in the absence of this information parents are only continuing to be stressed and worried about when this was coming it reminds me a bit of the vaccine rollout Mm -hmm. when health canada was very forthcoming with how many doses were coming where they were coming from and when so it's a bit interesting to see a bit of a different approach in how they're communicating this current stress and strain for parents susan have they learned their lesson from COVID 19 and that kind of communication well, um, I don't have to communicate with them all the time, but uh, judging by my colleagues, it, I think Health Canada needs some communications lessons. I hope this is one of them. Yeah, and to that end, though, I mean, should they have been more forthcoming in terms of how much, where, and when, as Rachel was saying? This is the government that is saying that it wants more data from the provinces uh, in, as a condition for getting more money. So um, practice what they preach, I guess. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Susan Delacourt, Rachel Aiello, Greg Weston, thank you all for joining us. Have a fantastic weekend. That is your week in Power Play, your Power Play Week in Politics. Thank you so much for spending your time with us. We will be back here on Monday. Until then, have a great night, everyone.